Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Professor Septab Savash, is an eminent scientist with a keen interest in biomedicine. In this podcast, she explains that her interests extend well beyond the laboratory and that the care of the patient is paramount in her view. Here to share her perspective is Professor Savash. Seftab, I'm delighted to welcome you to the Health Design Podcast. You are an eminent scientist with a keen interest in the technical side of medicine, and yet some of your research suggests that there's a lot more to you than that. But I want to start at the very beginning. Tell me about your journey in science. Where did it begin and why this particular field of oncology that you seem to be involved in? Thank you, first of all, for having me here. I'm really excited. And I must say, this is my first podcast experience. So it's very, very special. So going back to your question, I am an accidental scientist. When I was a high school student, I had a number of different interests from engineering to medicine to literature was my maybe the top interest. But you know what? Life has uh, some other um, plans for you. So I ended up in a molecular biology and genetics department. And I at the university and I wanted to get out. I couldn't. So I said, you know, you have to graduate. So, you you know, I graduated and then it was tough for me. But I think in the fourth year, the final year, I also realized it's a really very interesting field like molecular genetics. It was just picking up at that time, you know, the genes being identified. We were learning a lot about our genetics, genomics, DNA, etc. So I continued with the graduate studies. And this is how I become a PhD scientist with, um, you know, molecular biology and genetics background. But what I have been focusing on since 2002 is cancer. So that's also some accidental fortunate event for me because I was recruited to Toronto for a postdoctoral fellowship. And this is where I started to work on cancer. And, you know, until that time, cancer is something that happens to very, you know, this is what I thought. It happens very, very rarely. But then you start learning, studying about it, and you learn, oh, my dear God, it's very common and it's affecting a lot of people. And I was young at that age, so I didn't have any cancer cases around my social environment. But as I learned about cancer, I got scared and I said, you know, there's so much suffering happening because of this cancer. It's an important health condition. We, uh, I can do something. I can contribute in, in, in some ways to that. And of course, as, as my age increased, as I said, like my friends and family members started to get diagnosed with it. So when it's so close and some of them actually died because of cancer. So that gives me an extra motivation. Right, personally and professionally, I see, I do see it's a very important cause to uh, work on and help, you know, cancer control. If there is anything I can do to help cancer control, reduce the burden of cancer, improve the cancer survival experiences, I will be just one happy person and scientist. So, this is my journey. A lot of accidental chances, good people, lots of support from family, great uh, professors both undergrad and grad and mentors. And with a little bit luck, you know, in the last 21 years, I've been working on cancer. And I think this is how I will retire if I retire. Still working on cancer. (laughs) We hear that scientists, many scientists are actually artists at heart. 
And I'm fascinated to hear that your initial love, your initial focus was in literature and art because somehow that seems to have re-emerged as your career has unfolded because you've become very fascinated by the imponderable things. How do we communicate with people? How do we improve outcomes for people? How do we use scientific language to communicate ideas that make sense to people who have a particular problem? I think reading and literature makes you see the world that you don't experience. So you develop empathy as well. So you develop empathy, you got different experiences, and maybe maybe this kind of helps you to approach to, to, to my research in a different way, maybe. They say that healthcare works really well if you happen to have broken bones and are bleeding and are taken into an operating theater mm-hmm. because people work yeah. and solve your problem really well. But when it comes to a chronic condition, a long-term condition where there's follow-up and a partnership required, healthcare often fails. And we often lack the translation of that technical know-how into something that could make that partnership easier. Tell us a little bit about that. Maybe it's slightly different, but maybe they have common ground. So I am interested in public engagement and partnering with patients and family members. And what does partnering means really? Traditionally, we used to have these individuals as research subjects, right? So, but that's not the case right now. We do work with them. We collaborate with them. They are investigators like us. And they are experts. We treat them as experts. And what is their expertise is their lived experiences. A cancer patient would know what a cancer lived experiences, what issues or what opportunities are there better than a scientist like me who is, you know, looking to the situation from outside of that experience. And the same thing with the family members. They also have uh, some sort of cancer-related experiences post-cancers. So they, they are the experts of their lived experiences. And they also have this great insight about the disease, the condition, and they understand others going through the same disease. They are the best advocates for them. And they really support. And they give all the tips. I know that they communicate really well because another thing that we really understand through our partnership with the patient is that the information, correct information and appropriate information is not easy to reach. But they are able to do that. They are able to communicate very clearly with everyone, including patients and families. They know, they understand. It's not superficial, but it's really, they do understand their experiences and they can communicate this to us and they can tell us, hey, this is what we really think is important here. You know, it's not what what I think is important, but it's, it's about what they think is important because it may be quite different and it can be quite surprising and also meaningful at the same time. And there is quite, um, I think there's quite a support to do so in Canada. I'm not sure about other countries, but in Canada in the last maybe a decade, there has been a patient-oriented research strategy. So really, you know, funders, projects, etc., are now encouraging patient partners to be in their projects. And they can help us. Again, like I am uh, working with um, a group of 15 people I'm leading. It's called Public Interest Group on uh, Cancer Research in Newfoundland and Labrador, which is our province here. So we started like three years ago by just first asking the question, what is the needs of our, uh, what are the issues that our population is facing? And 
we were able to identify and prioritize certain cancer-related things, like uh, excess information was one of them. A lot of people can't find information, even though they are available, and sometimes they are not even available. And the other thing, patient empowerment. You know, you want to have access to your medical records, but can you? Some individuals, I think, can't do that. But it can be very empowering if they want it, if they want their medical information. So these are just examples. So we started with needs assessment, we work with them, and then we design studies, and we are conducting some studies together with them. Seriously, we treat them as experts. Are They are equal, and they give us incredible uh, amount of motivation and insight. And they simplify our approach. So we, like even in our recruitment of other research subjects, they, we, we, we always check with them, hey, is this my text, does it, is it simple enough? Is it understandable enough? Or is it just a, you know, scientific language that it's actually not very useful? And in terms of knowledge uh, dissemination, it's wonderful because they are, again, they understand and they communicate so well. And since it's their experience, they are able to define their experiences much better than anyone else. And again, they are incredible advocates. So they, when they speak, they don't speak for themselves, but they speak for everyone else and they want great things. And all of these things for me is incredibly meaningful. Give us an example of the kind of information that in your studies you've discovered we may think it's a given or straightforward, but the patient doesn't absorb this information, or in fact, something that the patient would have regarded as much more important that we haven't thought about in the course of either a clinical trial or, or, for that matter, clinical practice. There are a number of things. I can say like more than one example, but first of all, before even getting diagnosis, right, because cancer is such a common disease, a lot of people would not, like, I think they, you know, it's really important to have screening early diagnosis because we know if cancer is early diagnosed, the survival chances are quite high, the cure chances are there, so it's really important. But how do we let the population know about the services? This is one thing. So just having a website, putting a screening information there, Something is great, but it's not, I think, the whole story. Other important thing is, of course, the importance of the primary health providers, like the family doctors, this and that. I think they, they, are, they have really critical role in informing their patients and encouraging them maybe to uh, undergo screening. But what's happening here in Canada is we are so short-staffed, and many of us, like in my province, 70% of the population does not have a family doctor. So how do we expect them to actually get proper medical information, such as uh, screening information for cancer or other, other diseases, like for diabetes, etc.? I think the primary health really has an important and very critical role in educating and guiding patients and informing them. But once this bridge is not there. Like again, 20% of the individuals do not have a family doctor here. So that means they are, they may be missing this. So this is one thing, but even after they are diagnosed, oftentimes you go to an oncologist, medical or radiation oncologist, and they tell you a number of things, but it's hard to remember those. And sometimes it may, it may be too scientific or medical. So, okay, you can 
take notes, you can record the conversation, you can ask again, but everybody is like, how much time can I take off my oncology? So if it would be great if I actually had different resource, maybe printed resource about like my own medical record. Maybe I should actually do my own research kind of stuff. So this is something that is also expressed, but others as well. So for example, okay, so I got diagnosed, I'm recommended some treatments, but what else? Because there are also support programs that the cancer patients and survivors can benefit from. Cancer is a physical disease, however, it comes with a lot of different consequences from psycho psychological, financial, and all, all of this, right? So where is the mental health support? Where are the, for example, programs that help transition uh, patients back to work after their treatment? There may be changes, there may be limitations, for example, there may be still side effects or the mental health, again, is an important part of it because cancer is really sometimes very challenging to cope with. It doesn't have to be, but it may be. So where is the mental health? And sexual health, we do see here that too. I mean, certain cancers, certain treatments can uh, increase uh, sexual dysfunctions. And some people may not even be comfortable enough talking about this. Some oncologists may not be even thinking about asking about this kind of problem. These are some of the information and needs that we talk with our uh, public members or, you know, patient partners, etc. So in this area, we have a lot of misinformation. I don't know how to clean up the misinformation from digital records, etc. But we have to really keep doing that. And what you are doing, you know, with having this podcast, global podcasting, and it's, I think this is very important. And that's why People like me, researchers, clinicians, etc. Everyone, I, I, you know, encourage them to be in social media and try to spread the right and accurate information. Very, very important to fight the misinformation. Second, having the information available and and accessible is really important because you may have a digital information like in a website, right? But I'll tell you something: we don't have. Not everyone has access to reliable internet. Here, for example, in rural Canada, okay, not everyone has access to, you know, iPads, cell phones, this and that. So we really need to think about the access issues. And sometimes, really, please remember the individuals with disabilities, like sight or, you know, um, hearing disabilities or others. We have to think all of this. So by just having a digital website, putting some information there and contact information, we can't expect individuals to have the information. First of all, we have to let them know about that there is such a website. I don't know how to fix that problem, right? So even for me, I'm a scientist. I'm I'm looking for information. Sometimes it's so difficult. It's, it's very difficult. So I don't know how to solve this problem, but we should do something about this. So let's fight with the misinformation. Let's provide accurate information. Let's make sure there are accessible ways to reach information. Accurate information, timely information, accessible, whether in digital or printed copies. And these are the ones that come to my mind. So we really have an obligation to make it clear and accessible. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health.
So speaking to the artist in you, why do you think it is that medicine seems to have fallen behind in terms of providing this kind of information? Is it something to do with how healthcare is timed, how the consultations are shorter, or is it something to do with the fact that language seems, the language barrier, the cultural barrier between healthcare and patients is getting wider? I believe there are a number of things. You mentioned about the language barrier because like in Canada and I'm pretty sure in Australia and other United States and other, you know, multinational countries, is we always say, we have, you know, an influx of newcomers. Even within Canada, we may have, because Canada has two official languages, French and English. I don't know French, but so even French speakers can be a my language minority in English-speaking Uh, Canadian provinces or vice versa, right? So language is certainly very important. And in addition to that, let's not forget our indigenous populations. And right. So and you also made a great point with language and culture. Cultural sensitivity is very important. We know that a number of vulnerable populations, including indigenous and 2S LGBTQA plus communities and refugees and language minorities and other vulnerable groups, they may not have access to services or information that they deserve because of cultural insensitivities, uh, lack of access to language, language barriers, and lack of access to the information and service as a whole. But what is really nice is that right now I do see, since the beginning of the pandemic particularly, I do see a really great social moment in terms of equity, in terms of for everyone, things for everyone, not for select, right? Not for the privilege, but for everyone. Can we have access? Can we increase access? Can we increase opportunities for everyone? So I do see that has happening in healthcare as well. Like there are a lot of cultural sensitivity training going on. For example, in my province, the indigenous healthcare coordinators, nurse navigator programs, etc., have been integrated. So I think things are changing for, I hope for the LGBTQ as well. Similar things are happening because I know a couple of actually advocates, and I think you have interviewed one of them earlier. Uh, he's a trans man and also a an, uh, cancer survivor. So it's really important, right? So their advocacy, the way that they describe and help us all learn. These are very, very important. So language, cultural barriers, but the other thing we really need to think about is resources. Canada has a universal health care system. So I'm not sure about, you know, uh, Australian health care system, but it's, we, we all have the same health care system, which is great. I'm really proud of that system. It's available to everyone, regardless of, you know, where, whether you work or whether where you live kind of stuff. But it's not, I think, a secret to say that it's actually is strained, especially in terms of staff, like uh, shortages of doctors, nurses, other allied health professionals, it's like radiation treatment assistants, for example. All of these, so you have, a, Canada has some sort of shortage and it's been just increasing lately, which is really scary. So resources are limited a lot. I know people are very dedicated in healthcare system. I haven't seen anyone who is not dedicated to the cause. 
but there is only that much one person can do, especially if they are trying to do two people's job. You're right about the resources, and it's not just in Canada. It's across the world that healthcare is under-resourced because we're getting yeah. older and because we're getting yeah. sicker. Morbidity and aging is the key driver of this. And of course, healthcare is becoming more expensive because we are now providing much more, thanks to people like you, we're providing much more effective treatments. But of course, mm-hmm. those don't come cheap when you get the investment in the research that needs to be done in order to provide that treatment. I want to pivot slightly now and go back to our story, your story as a scientist. Now, I'm too, I'm a scientist, and I like neat experiments. I like things that you have a controlled trial where you control all the variables, <laughs> you take into account all the confounding variables, and you get an outcome yes. that you are yes. confident in. The kind of research that you are talking about there is not like that, because there are many, many confounding variables as to why some people respond and other people don't respond. How do you square that in your mind? Is this the artist in you coming out more? I actually got a similar question this morning. I was on a radio show and, you know, controlling all this variability, that's crazy. We can't do that. But what we can do is that control for the most important ones, maybe add one or two experimental ones, and then and then hope that our results will be actually validated in another cohort. So this is, uh, so we do a lot of modeling, statistical modeling, as well as you mentioned. For example, when we look at the genetic biomarkers, see whether they can uh, be prognostic markers in cancer patients, right? So we do a lot of statistical analysis and modeling, but we, again, there's only that much confounding factor we can think about stage age or, you know, MSI, microsatellite stability, for example, tumor phenotype. We can't put more a lot of factors together because then statistics, the model does not, it doesn't serve its purpose. So we can't solve that problem, right? We can't solve this statistical power problem. But what we can do is that we can identify maybe a couple of key or established prognostic markers as confounders and then add our you know, biomarkers, for example, experimental factors get some models and, and publish it. Hopefully, others will look at those and replicate in their cohorts. And then maybe we will say, hey, okay, what we found in our model wasn't by chance. Maybe there is something there. It happens very rarely, but we were able to do it. So we have to publish. We have to publish and encourage people to actually replicate others' findings. This is, uh, the, this is how I see it. it does happen. Because it's impossible to control all this variable. You are right. The Journal of Health Design. Fostering collaboration. Amplifying the voice of health advocates. Growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. It is, and it's even more difficult when you're talking about social research, where you're talking about people who oh, have yes. very, very different lifestyles, very different ways of looking at the world, very different responses. I want to yeah. focus a little bit on that now. And this is a more tricky question because mm-hmm. as scientists, we get funded for doing research. And one of the key factors there is to have patient advocates involved. Funding bodies like to see that you have consulted mm-hmm. with patients. Mm-hmm. 
There is a real mm-hmm. risk here of tokenism, isn't there? There's a real risk of saying to somebody, yes, you're involved because you happen to be of that particular gender uh, and you have that particular cancer and come from that social class. And therefore, you'll help me translate these findings to that community. But in fact, you are not really looking at them as a partner because you've already decided what their role is going to be. Yeah. How, how do we tackle this? I do observe it in the other colleagues as well. I think the key here is to really treat our patient partners as experts, collaborators. We can't really expect them to be, because you also pointed out to that great word tokenism, which I really am very, very aware of. And I think I know a couple of patient partners, not my patient partners, but others also mentioning about that, you know, I I feel like I'm just here because somebody wanted me to hear like founder, but I'm not really contributing or nobody is actually respecting my thoughts. It requires a culture shift and maybe it starts with the language as well. Maybe it's not patient partners, but maybe it's patient ambassadors. So I learned this, right, or patient advisors. I learned that again by consulting to patients. How would you like to be actually addressed? And I think patient partner is great, but patient advisor and ambassador is actually, it really has a different meaning. It's really awesome. So it tells exactly what their expertise, the power is on them, etc. So again, treat them. We have to treat them as our equal. There isn't, and they are the expert. And... We can't really treat them like just something that we have to have in our teams because somebody asks us. So that's not happening. And they are going to miss a lot of things if they don't listen to patient partners or advisors. They have incredible insights. So it's a culture shift. One thing, and I, I keep telling everyone I know, you just need to forget about what you have done in the past with the patients as you know research subjects. That's not it. They are the experts. That's it. You you will treat with them and work with them as you are treating or working with you know any, any other investigator. So once that happens, once this is established, everything goes really well, incredibly well. So where to from here, Zetap? What do you think will happen in the next five to 10 years? Genomics is expanding at an extraordinary yeah. rate. We're doubling the rate at which medicine is increasing its knowledge base. Doctors can hardly keep up with this. Where to from yeah. here? Science will explode, continue to explode, because thanks to the advances in technology, as you pointed out, getting the data is not the issue. But the issue now is how do we actually dig into that data and get what we want. So previously, we did it through statistics, you know, some competition stuff. But I keep thinking, is artificial intelligence going to be maybe useful here? Maybe it will tell especially if it's like learning from the data and then not my expertise, but I'm really hopeful that uh, that kind of approaches will help us to dig into the data because data analysis is a problem. Generating the data is not, it's very advanced, but what does this data mean and how do we get something meaningful out of it? So again, I'm taking computational methodologies and artificial intelligence kind of stuff can be very useful. But for other, you know, when it comes to cancer or another condition, I think Prevention doesn't work all the time, 100%, but we really need to focus on prevention and early detection because 
then the effect or consequences of this disease is much less and which uh, which is much manageable and even sometimes curable in, in, in certain cancers. I, I would like to see more emphasis on prevention, educating population, all right, with accurate and timely information. I would like to see social determinants of health fixed, for example, poverty, right? Poverty, if you don't have a safe housing, if you don't have money to actually buy healthy food, how can we expect you to? I think, and, and social determinants of health, it can be very useful in cancer, but as well as other chronic conditions like obesity and diabetes and other, other mental health issues as well. Why don't we really focus on this kind of determinants like the poverty, raising poverty, increasing social equity, increasing access and fairness and so on. So I think these are really like we have to look at the global as well. So, okay, cancer is really locally important because we have the highest cancer incidence in Canada among Canadian provinces in Newfoundland and Labrador where I live. But I mean, it's also a global problem. How can I be happy if I help someone here, which is great, I can be happy, but how can, can I be fully happy if it doesn't really translate into helping someone else on the other side of the world, for example? So I think local victories are great, but even better victories would be global. So global health equity, global fight with mis- misinformation, excessive information, excessive services, public education. And in, ta- in, in case of cancer, I think we also need to focus on erasing the fear about cancer because I think it can increase the screening and other treatment and so on, uh, or early diagnosis as well. So there are a number of things we can, but I think locally and globally, we have to think globally, global health, global health equity, accessibility, equity, and social determinants of health. I think we can do it. I think we can erase poverty and we can make sure that everyone in the world has similar opportunities when it comes to healthcare. We should be able to aim for that. I think it will happen. You're talking about two things there. You're talking about certainly using AI to make science more accessible to those who are providing the services when the patient is sick. But looking downstream Mm. at preventing people getting sick in the first place and public health, public health policy, and as you say, the social determinants of health addressing those. So those appear to be the way forward. And certainly you are saying what most of our guests are, are telling us, that computers and computer science and genomics and personalized medicine is going to make a difference. But at the same time, until and unless we address poverty and those who have not, then society will not benefit because it will continue to have to firefight. It will continue to have exactly. to, to deal exactly. with people who are, who are sick all exactly. the time. Exactly. Why don't we, you know, you, you made a great point. Why don't we try to reduce the risk of getting to the fire rather than fighting the fire, right? That's wonderful. Yes, exactly. Sevdab Savash, it's been an absolute joy spending time with you. Thank you so much for spending the time with me. It is fantastic that a scientist who is so involved in the technical side of medicine is also deeply, deeply caring of the human side of that exchange. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Jiva. I really enjoyed our conversation. 
And I think what you are doing is incredibly important. As I said, we need to make sure that there is information out there, correct and accessible. People need to know that we are really working because there are a lot of dedicated individuals, scientists, clinicians, and advocates trying to do things better for population. So it's, it's, it's really important to be having all these different voices in your program, in your podcast series. And I am so honored to be here with you today. Thank you very much. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.